Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome, everyone, to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things. And if you want to grow abundantly, my name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. I'm sure if you're like me, you've wondered many, many times as you've journeyed through this life, well, what makes life meaningful and fulfilling? Well, my guest today is none other than Harvard-trained psychologist Mark Schultz, and he's the Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development and Sue Cardis, PhD, 1971, Chair in Psychology at Brian Moir College. He also directs the Data Science Program and previously chaired the Psychology Department and Clinical Development Psychology, PhD Program at Brian Moir uh, college as well. Dr. Schultz received his BA from Amherst College and his PhD in clinical psychology uh, from the University of California, Berkeley. And he is a practicing therapist with postdoctoral training in health and clinical psychology at Harvard Medical School. And the big question that I have for you and that we discuss during this conversation is what makes for a happy life or more or less a fulfilling life or what is a good life for that fact. According to the directors of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, Dr. Mark Schultz and Dr. Robert Waldinger, the simple but surprising answer to this question is, what do you think? (laughs) I'm not going to spoil it for you guys. You have to listen to this conversation. But I feel like this conversation is really, really valuable. It provides so many insights and really gives us a broader understanding and perspective into what science has to say about what makes a more meaningful life. And Mark Schultz, my guest today, and Dr. Robert Waldinger have created and written a brilliant book called The Good Life. And no, it's not part of the Netflix show or The Good Place. This is The Good Life, which has been praised by so many amazing authors like Angela Duckworth um, and Jay Shetty, among many, many others. But honestly, I feel like you guys are going to really, really get a lot out of this one. It is bolstered with a lot of wisdom, a lot of humor, and there is so much, so much knowledge here. Uh, that you guys are really going to take so much away from it. I love this conversation and I hope that you guys do too. 
All right, my friends, I have a, another special announcement to share with you. And that is I've teamed up with the incredible uh, duo, the brothers, Zach and Joel Perna, the creators of Slouch Potato, which pretty much is a brilliant line of clothing, which are designed to be pajamas. But like I've said in previous advertisements, they don't even look like pajamas in my opinion. Well, they kind of do and they don't in, in that respect. I get to wear my the, these clothes on the show, feel comfortable. They are literally the comfy, comfiest clothes I have, believe it or not. And that's not that's saying something. Uh, so shirts, they do underwear, and they're doing uh, shorts. They're doing all kinds of different patterns as well. Their new line has uh, just dropped which is awesome. You can go and check it all out. It is pretty cool, but I love what these guys are doing. And if you want to get 10% off your order, you can use discount code STORYBOX. That is discount code STORYBOX for 10% off your order. Just visit slashpotato.com and you can get um, all the goodies that come with it. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me in this story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Mark Schultz. Well, thank you. I'm really pleased to be here, Jay. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and apologies in advance for butchering all those. (laughs) They're not so big, but getting 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 them off my tongue. You, you found all the hard ones in my history. You found all of them. So, yeah. I mean, kudos to myself for actually getting through it. Yep. <laughs> Thank you for your grace on that. <laughs> uh, but, Mark, I'm, I'm very excited to have you here because this big question that a lot of people have of what does it mean to live a good life or what is a good life in the first place is something that I've asked myself and many people listening or watching this have probably asked themselves in the past as well. And there's a lot of different answers I'm sure that we can dive into. But before we do that, my first question for you is how are you feeling around the success of the book? I mean, it sort of has blown up a little, quite a lot. Become a New York Times bestseller as well. Yeah, we're we're really pleased, gratified by the success of the book. Um, surprising in some ways, but we really hoped there would be a receptive audience. We tried hard to bring the science to people in a way that was understandable and also could help people live flourishing lives to improve their daily experience and their lives. So we we hope that we did it in a way that was engaging and helpful and the early signs are that people are appreciating our efforts. So it feels really gratifying and very exciting. You didn't anticipate at all thinking, well, this is a big question that a lot of people ask themselves on a, on a regular basis. You didn't think at all like this book is a needed book first and foremost, but the reception has been astounding. You, you didn't anticipate that? I think I, I, we never sort of, you know, count our blessings ahead of time. We, we sort of, you know, worked hard on the book. We were proud of what we did. And we think we learned a lot along the way of writing the book. And that got into the book itself. But you never know how books are going to be received. And this is the first book of this type. I've, I've written other books, but f- not for popular audiences. So um, we're just really pleased uh, about it. You know, people had high hopes for us. And and I think we tried to minimize those expectations because it's always hard. But uh, it's been great, the reception. Really nice. 
you've written other sort of academic literature books. Is that right? Right. So I've I've written a bunch of you know articles for academic audiences. I've edited two books for academic audiences, and this was really an attempt to get out of just writing for that narrow academic audience because not enough people are reading that. So the findings of, are of interest to other scholars, but we really wanted to take those findings that get buried in the academic literature and, and figure out a way to both share them with a, a broader audience and also to think about the lessons uh, that that those findings give us for how to live a good life. You are, I mean, you, you the director, the associate director of the Harvard study of adult development, which I'm I'm actually learning a bit about adult development or human development as we go along, like different personalities. I mean, you've got Erickson's psycho mm-hmm. psychosocial stages and there's so many other forms. You got Sigmund Freud's um mm-hmm. psychosexual, I think it was, and then many, many, many others. You you would know this. But I'm curious about the how do we how do we go about knowing really when it comes down to learning about the good life as human beings how does that impact our overall development from i guess the early stages like infancy throughout like adolescence and and so forth does that question make sense yeah yeah i mean at least uh, there's a part of it that i can talk to and you can tell me if there's more that i you know i should talk to um so this is a kind of unique study. It began in the 1930s. It's a remarkable study that's followed 724 people across their entire lifetime. So one of the really important opportunities is to look at how people change. Uh, it started in adolescence, the, the study. So of the 724 original participants, two-thirds were poor kids growing up in some of the poorest neighborhoods in Boston, Massachusetts. And literally across the city was another group that were at university, at Harvard University. So they had a more privileged perch in life. But we followed both groups forward to try and understand both how they changed and what led to their thriving in their lives. Very different circumstances they grew up in. So we were interested in both groups. What were the conditions? What were the factors in their life that led to human thriving? And one of the things that we found, which is important, I think that's part of what you're asking about, is that people do change in adulthood, that it used to be that we thought human beings were almost fully formed by the time they reached young adulthood, and that childhood was the most important and nothing much happened after that. And sure enough, adults do change and develop in important ways. They're kind of normal changes that many of us go through. And then there are opportunities to change the direction of our life as well, that some people who start off under great challenges, maybe not doing so well, uh, figure it out and their path forward is much more positive. And other people encounter challenges that, um, you know, change their path from a good path to one that's filled with more difficulties and challenge. So, um, you know, kind of incredible when you follow people, the number of paths that people take. So. Is that is that where you were you were what you were wondering about? And did I get the at least part of the question, Jay? Absolutely. And you sort of brought up two questions that I wanted to ask you. The whole idea of nature versus nurture there, mm-hmm. like our genetics playing a factor in the development of our life and our choices as a whole, versus our environment. The whole idea that our environment impacts how we behave and how we grow and how we change. And I wanted to ask you, following along with the nature versus nurture, are are our personalities ever evolving as we go through life? Or they, once we reach a certain stage of adulthood, we're we're stuck. There's no change in the personality, but we change 
other elements of our character? We, we keep changing. Um, and it's kind of remarkable. Again, we follow people across their entire lives to the time that they died. And one of the kind of fascinating findings in modern psychology, one that surprised me, I wouldn't have guessed this, uh, which makes science always kind of interesting, is that as we go from midlife or kind of mid 50s or 60s to later in life, people generally grow happier. Um, and that's remarkable if you think about what late life is like, right? We face physical challenges. Um, we might lose the meaning then purpose that our jobs provided for us. Our friends may be sick or dying. So our social networks are often shrinking. So it's a kind of remarkable thing that people get happier as they age. And part of it is that we think there's a kind of emotional wisdom that goes into the decisions they make about what's important in life. So they kind of double down on existing relationships. They get more out of them and they particularly um, lean into those relationships that give them that enlivening positive feeling of connection. Uh, so they figured it out. And that's a little bit like a personality change that happens as you age. I think it's really about, as I said, emotional wisdom. Um, that's just one example, but we can change in other ways as well. So as you get older, you become a little bit more wiser, you understand things a bit more, and I guess you would have less stress. Is that right? Well, the, the stress part is interesting because if you think about it objectively, there are certainly medical challenges that are happening for people as they age. Um, even beyond any medical problem or disease, there are physical challenges that happen. We're not as able to get around or to be flexible, um, maybe enjoy some of the physical pursuits that we did in the past. So objectively, I'm not sure that old age is easier, less stressful than middle age or for young people. Um, but there's something about the perceptions of older people and maybe the way they cope with challenges. That's that emotional wisdom that I talked about that enables them to navigate those challenges in ways that maybe are more positive. Is that more of a, a genetic factor, you think, or has it, has it been more of a environmental things that they have picked up over experiences in their life? I, I think this happens normatively, meaning it happens normally across large groups of people. So it's probably something that's a result of circumstances and experience that people accumulate. But the, the bigger question you're asking, do genes matter for our happiness and our flourishing? Of course, they matter. Um, in the realm of happiness, the way that scientists have sort of cut the pie is that genes probably control maybe about 50% of our happiness. And to me, that's that's a sort of optimistic amount. It means the glass is both half empty and half full, and we have lots of control over our happiness. Some of it is determined by our circumstances, and a lot of that remaining 50%, probably 80% of the remaining 50% is determined by the actions that we take on a daily basis, which means that we can control how happy we are to a great extent. This is more a factor of my curiosity, mainly because I'm I'm learning about all these developmental stages and these theories that yeah. a lot of psychologists came up with. Do you think that Freud, Erickson, Fowler, all these, I guess you could call them fathers of, of psychology, when they came up with these theories, do you think that they had, do you think they were right in saying that these psychology, these developmental aspects, these stages that we go through, they're all somewhat linked in, in some capacity, but do you think that they were somewhat correct when it comes down to connection and, and finding meaning and, and happiness? 
I, I think there's value in all of the folks that you mentioned. I'm going to talk particularly about Freud and Erickson. You know, Freud gave us this notion of the importance of early experience. And I think early experience has proven to be important in a number of studies to our ability to connect and get the good things that we get out of relationships. That's true when we study animals. That's true when we study humans. It's true in our data. We see connections between childhood and the kinds of relationships folks have in their 80s. But it's not determinative. It's not fate that that early experience puts you on a path that may be positive. It's a kind of strength that you can carry with you, but it may also be a challenge that you can overcome. So it has an influence, but it's not sealing your fate. And I think that's the key part. So I, I think we can give Freud credit for these ideas about early experiences important. Um, you know, he had lots of theories and some of the ideas I think have not proven to be useful, but some of that work I think is very important. Um, and Erickson certainly was one of the first to try and map out the kinds of challenges that people normally go through as they age into adulthood. I think that's a really valuable framework. Our study, the Harvard Study of Adult Development, has actually been one of the important contributors long before I was involved. George Valiant, who was the previous leader of the study, contributed ideas about um, kind of refining Erickson's ideas about late life and uh, the end of midlife, the kinds of things that were important. So George talked a lot about generativity, which was this idea about giving to others beyond yourself, that getting meaning out of life by doing something that helps other people, mentoring volunteering. Um, and that turns out to be an important thing when we're thinking about our legacy in life. So as we age, that becomes more and more important. How about, for example, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? How important is it when we say happiness? How is that a need in our life? Well, I think Maslow's idea, you know, which for listeners, the, the basic idea is that at the bottom of this pyramid, there's some foundational needs that we all have for safety and security and food. I think he was really onto something there that if we look at modern society and we look at data, for example, that connects income to happiness, at the low ends of the income spectrum, right up in the United States, it's right up to that kind of mid middle class level, the average level in the United States for family income, uh, income and happiness has a small relationship. More income is associated with, with greater happiness. Again, it's small, it's not huge, but it is there. And it's probably there because that gives us safety and security in the United States, really important. It gives us access to healthcare as well. Um, so it gives us a sense of control and our basic needs are being met. Beyond that, income seems to have less of an impact, um, and it begins to involve sort of more complicated social and psychological ideas that Maslow thought about, about self-fulfillment uh, and self-actualization, and importantly, connections to others. And I'm not sure that Maslow emphasized that part enough in his pyramid, but we think that's really critical uh, in terms of your thriving in, late, in, in your adult life, in your whole life, actually. So. Yeah, when you go a little bit deeper and you sort of unpack every single layer, there's a little bit more depth to it, I think. Of course, yeah. Not, not just from what you see in the pyramid. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like great to talk about all the elements of the pyramid as as it stands, but then when you go into each one, there's a lot more that is unpacked and a lot more to understand as, as, as it stands. But um I wanted to ask you about going a little bit deeper into the, I was, I was reading a book about um, it's called the boy crisis, Dr. Warren Farrell. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of or, or read that book. And he was talking about how 
for a lot of males, a lot of boys these days, if they don't have a career uh, versus the ones that do have a career, they're more likely to, the ones that don't have a career, they're more likely to commit suicide because they don't have a sense of security, a sense of identity wrapped around having a sense of income. Um, And I want to ask you a similar question regarding the whole idea of identity and, and how we wrap around happiness with identity is, yeah. is identity part of happiness. I think it is related to it. And the part that I want to pick up that I think is important is that we all strive for a sense of meaning in our life. So when psychologists think about happiness, they're really two parts that they're thinking about. One is a kind of momentary joy or pleasure that we might get. So you and I are talking and it's an enjoyable conversation. We might have a sense of happiness or joy or connection, but that's fleeting. When we're done talking, it may begin to ebb and, you know, we may miss the conversation. Uh, so our happiness level or joy goes up and down throughout the day. But the other part is a kind of more sustained sense that life is good and it has meaning for us. And for many people, a sense of meaning is derived from the work that they do. It's an important part of the waking hours that we do. It's a large part of those hours. So many of us are able to derive a sense of purpose or a sense of meaning in our work if we're lucky. Um, some people have jobs, though, that don't provide them that that sense. Uh, it's more of a kind of meeting the bills. Uh, the work may be isolating and, and kind of disconnected from other people. So it may be challenging in that way. But certainly the work that you do uh, can be important. There are other ways of finding purpose. Uh, Some people find it in religion. Some people find it in volunteer activities or being an important part of their community. But in our modern life, work is a pretty essential part of it. And, you know, as far as traditional gender kind of attitudes, work historically has been more important to the identity of males. I think it's become much more complicated as the workplaces have grown more equitable and women are working in greater numbers than they ever had. So um, identities are shifting always, um, but meaning is connected to identity, right? Who am I? Uh, What's my purpose in life? Those are similar kinds of questions. That's how I would think about it. Do you think, well, you brought up a good point there with uh, differing genders. Do you feel like that men are more happy or less happy these days compared to women or in compared to the past? So so the most important thing to say starting off is that the data that have looked at gender differences, male versus female, the differences in happiness or life satisfaction are very small. Yeah, they're very small, which means that men and women overlap more than they differ. Um, What's been interesting is that there was a time uh, maybe 20 years ago where surveys consistently suggest that women reported higher life satisfaction if they step back and think about their entire lives. Women reported higher satisfaction. But if you looked at those daily emotions, women reported more stress and more negative emotions than men did. That has changed a little bit that women have gone down in their life satisfaction. Maybe men have increased a little bit. Um, And I would say that data is somewhat volatile. It's changing and we're trying to make sense of it. But my overall read is that pretty equivalent across gender. If there are differences, they're relatively small. Um, The historical question is really interesting and it's complicated. And it's complicated because our language and our culture has just evolved so much. So, you know, I talk about this with my students a lot and they'll say things like, you know, we're the most stressed generation of all time. We've had to face challenges that no generation has ever faced. 
And I might even introduce my study at that point. I say, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, you didn't have to experience the depression, World War II, the Korean War. These are the events that shaped the lives of the participants in our study. So objectively, I'm not sure that young people are the most stressed ever, but they feel it for sure. And part of that is that uh, our language has changed in a good way. The culture has changed in a good way. We're able to talk about mental illness. We're able to acknowledge negative emotions and challenges. That's all good. But for science, it makes it very hard to compare levels across time Yeah, for that reason. It is very interesting that you bring that up because, I mean, compared to the Great Depression, compared to World War One, World War Two, compared to those eras versus today, it feels like we've got more stress put on our shoulders than ever before. Well, that's the way you've been describing how we feel, but that's not really the actual reality of the the situation for some reason. It's like, where did that feeling actually come from? Is it more well, about the language that we've been using or is there something else involved there? Well, I think that's exactly the question that we need to ask. And it's a really hard one to answer, right? We have to time travel to do it really well. And we haven't figured that out. But one of the things that's also different, which I think adds to that sense that younger people have about how stressed they are, is that we're at a point in history where it's clear that we have alarmingly high rates of loneliness. So if you ask, in most countries, people report adults um, rates of loneliness, somewhere between 20 and 50% of people report on a daily basis that they feel lonely. That's extraordinarily high, and it's high in populations that we wouldn't necessarily guess it might be high. So young people who are in university, for example, report very high rates of loneliness, even though they live in close proximity to lots and lots of people that have some similarities to them, some similar goals in life, they're doing similar activities. So there's something about modern society, and we have a few ideas, but there's something about modern society that has made people feel disconnected. And that's a big change. Um, in the U.S., people live often further from where they grew up than they used to. We're a very mobile society, so they're less connected to their families and even the friends that they made growing up in school. Um, and then there are other things about modern society that are also probably contributing to the sense that no one really knows us, that no one really has our back, that sense of disconnection that we know is also linked with physical health problems as well. And then we have things like the pandemic, which also contribute to people feeling lonely. Absolutely. Feeling yeah. disconnected, which was just a huge and crying shame. And it's like, we've got this massive mental health crisis, but it's really a crisis of loneliness and lack of connection more than anything else. And it's like, we've got to try and change that. We've got to try and adjust what has been done, um, sadly, and try and find ways in which we can create meaningful connection again so that people don't feel lonely. But it's interesting how you mentioned your university students, even though there are people around them, they may not necessarily feel connected to them, which is an interesting line of thought. It's like, well, what is real connection then? I think that's right. So when people talk about loneliness, it's our internal sense, again, that people don't know us, that they they don't have our back if we need someone that we don't know who that person could be uh, to rely on. So this idea that loneliness is different than the degree of physical proximity we have to other people, you can be lonely in a crowd is a really important idea. 
Technology probably also plays a role here that there are technologies that have incredible capacity to bring us together, to connect us with people who are far away. We've never had access to these technologies before, but they also come with challenges that if we want to, and many of us do, we can go online and look through a social media feed or other media and see the life that people are curating online that suggests that they're always having fun, that they're always doing activities that I wish I could be doing. And for most people, if you do that, you keep zooming, you know, scrolling through those those screens, um, you feel depressed. It's it's sad to look at the life that you imagine other people having that feels better than your own. So these technologies can be can contribute to this. And part of the challenge is learning how to use them. And I think as a society and as companies, the tech companies need to think about ways that we these technologies can be harnessed for good, for the kinds of connections that you're describing. Um, you know, texting also is another example. I mean, what a great thing to receive a text from a friend or a relative or anyone that says, I'm thinking about you, you know, hoping we connect soon. It's a great kind of momentary uplift, but it's not the same as the connection that we get when we're in person with someone and we're seeing their whole bodies and the body language can be in sync between two people. So we have to recognize that we also give up things with the current ways that technology functions. It's like that wonderful energy that you feel within yourself for whatever reason. It's like your hormones are somehow being mixed with this other person's hormones in a way, even though you're not really in touching them, so to speak, or whatever it is. It's just like you feel that sense that I, I, I know this person now. Like I, I, I get to know them because I'm asking them questions and that feels good. And absolutely. Like, I love that description that there's a kind of jolt of energy and we all know it, right? The, that experience that we've had. And it's so nice. And we can certainly get a part of that jolt over technologies. Again, you and I are having a lovely conversation. I'm feeling connected. Uh, we're sharing some synchrony. I'm nodding, you're nodding. Um, but they're, they're jolts that what we know about online communication is that the less lifelike it is. So texting on the one extreme, maybe phones and then video on the other extreme, the less lifelike, the more those emotions are dampened, the more the kinds of cues that suggest we can be in synchrony, they get dampened as well. So there's some appeal for some people about dampened emotions, but what it means is that the kind of glue that connects us, which is partly emotion, partly our bodily signals and cues, our body language, um, that those are harder to see when we're communicating on technology. How about for people that say to you, Mark, I am an introverted individual. I don't necessarily need a great deal of connection. I'm happy being alone. I enjoy my own company more than the company of others. Yeah, such an important question. And we we all come in these kind of various flavors. And it turns out a lot of people identify as being introverted. Probably the most important idea is that some people thrive, the less introverted they might thrive when they're with lots of other people, like at a party and there's lots of activity and noise. And others thrive one-on-one -on -one or just a few people. And they also need, importantly, as you're describing, they need that downtime where they're alone. 
But regardless of how introverted you are, those connections are still important. That research is very clear on that. Uh, the pandemic made it very clear. Um, I know people who said at the beginning of the pandemic, this is like my dream. I can stay home. I don't have to talk to anyone. And those people really struggled as the pandemic continued for the first few weeks. Maybe it was okay. Um, but then they missed the connections with others, maybe even more than other people did because there were so few in their life. So we all need the connection, but the, the the style in which we engage, the kind of amount of people that are important to us, that differs uh, by who we are. What happens when someone is deprived of connection for a long period of time? Yes, and we have lots of research on that, and it starts early. We know that that infants, human infants, animal infants won't develop well if they don't have that secure, safe connection with a caretaker. Uh, some of it is physical contact and the warmth of connection that we provide for babies. Uh, so it starts then. And it's very clear that people who feel disconnected, who feel lonely, so that 20 to 50 percent, that that in, uh, incurs great physical costs for us. So it's associated with more physical illnesses. It's associated with premature death. And the, the risk is significant enough. I think this is just so important. That's on the same level as obesity, the risk that we associate with obesity for physical health problems and smoking a pack of cigarettes. So we're talking about a very significant risk combined with a very high prevalence, meaning lots of people experience loneliness. So this is a big public health problem. It's being recognized more and more. In the UK, they have a Minister of Loneliness. and the United States, our Surgeon General is talking a lot about uh, the importance of addressing disconnection and helping people who are lonely. I think this is a, a really serious health challenge that we have. So what happens to a child that has been neglected by their mother? Is that Does that mean that later on in life, as they grow up, they're going to struggle even more with finding connection with people? Or is it more about, I have a choice, even though I was neglected as a child by my mom, yeah. I received the kind of connection that I needed, but yet I'm going to choose to try and connect with people that I, I want to connect with. I, I think both sides that you articulated tell part of the story. So it's very clear that our early experience carries over, that we learn a lot in our early relationships. We learn about how much we can trust other people, how kind or not other people are when we're vulnerable. Um, our caretakers, our parents might teach us how to deal with our emotions when we're afraid or sad. That's part of the task of parents. Um, some people are lucky enough to have parents that do that job well, that they've modeled and helped kids learn those skills. And that's an advantage that you can carry into adult relationships and into life generally. If you haven't had that experience, it's harder. It may mean that you're less trusting in relationships, um, that you carry a certain cautiousness and, and you may resist making yourself vulnerable for that reason. Um, but we, we see in our study and other studies that people continue to learn these skills in adulthood. So a good relationship in adulthood, for example, can be, we, we use a kind of complicated idea, this corrective emotional experience. We can literally correct what we learned from our childhoods by having a good, trusting, reciprocal relationship in adulthood. So some people find that in a partner or a good friend. Uh, for some people, they might find it uh, in therapy with a good therapist. Um, so we have the capacity to continue to grow and change, uh, but certainly having a good childhood in the way that we described has some advantages that carry into adulthood. 
So in other words, we're not totally doomed. <laughs> we're not totally doomed. You know, I, I can quantify this too, because research has begun to quantify it. So in our own research in the 1930s, we went into the homes of these 724 participants. We interviewed the parents. We watched them interact with their children. And we rated how warm and nurturing and consistent the home was. And those ratings from the 1930s correlate, they're connected to ratings 60, 70 years later that have to do with how connected you are to your partner when you're in your 80s. So there is a connection, but if we had to quantify it, it's it's small. It's like, I don't remember the exact number, but it's less than 5% of the variation at the end of life in your relationships can be connected to what happened early in life. So there's a lot of room for us to grow. We're not at all doomed. Um, and there's a lot of the, those decades of time those are opportunities for us to learn, to grow, and to change. And lots of people do that. How about for intimacy, like the level of intimacy that we receive from a loved one, for example? So I we, we think beyond the extreme. So if we're not talking about, you know, real neglect and abuse in childhood, that we all learn certain models of relationships from our early experience. There's an area of research that we call attachment that is really interested in the kind of bond that infants make with their parents. And there's research to suggest that that bond carries over later into relationships. And there are really two styles that are relevant to this. Some people are avoidant of relationships. They learn that their caretaker maybe isn't available or they develop this idea that the caretaker may not be available, maybe because they work all the time or maybe the caretaker is dealing with some challenges or maybe in some ways it's a perception that the child brings to the interaction. And they might protect themselves by saying relationships aren't that important. So these might be people that really lean into work in young adulthood, um, say relationships I'm going to deal with later in life. And they turn out to keep saying later and later. Um, but they they don't emphasize the importance of connection to others. And probably it's to protect themselves a little bit from rejection and from the kinds of challenges that we have. On the other end are people who are quite anxious about those intimate attachments. They worry that they're not good enough or that people won't treat them kindly. And they lean in in a way that reveals their anxiety. They're always checking to make sure the relationship is going okay. Um, do you love me? Do you really care for me? So there's a, a kind of vigilance on the worries, the challenges, the vulnerability that comes with relationships. And we all have parts of those styles, but some people have more uh, strong versions of each of those two styles. So early experience matters there and how we navigate romantic relationships as well. And we friendships have. too. It's not just romantic ones. It's friendships as well. Even I think probably how we navigate things at work as well. Yeah. You mentioned uh, friendships too, which is and our work colleagues, you name it, it's like life, you can't get away from it. I mean, you you could, but then you'd, I think there was a study done on someone that they isolated him for, I can't remember how many days it was, but he ended up dying because he, he basically had no connection and he went crazy and then just passed away. It was, um, I've got to find that study actually and send it to you. I don't know if you already know, if you know what I'm talking about. At all. And, and that particular study, I'm not sure I know, um, but the idea I'm familiar with, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was um, something that I read, it was a while ago on, on um, I forgot if it was a book or, or an article, I can't remember. I'll, I'll try and find it and then I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. But um, it, it was very interesting how how that played out and, and how we're sort of um, 
we need more connection in our life more than ever before. But I, I did want to ask you about, is there any data regarding, so if, if say for example, a child uh, that doesn't have a mother, the mother passes away and it's only the father raising the child. Is there any data to support the fact that that child will grow up being like less attached or struggle with attachment? Yeah. So this is an important question. And the early research on attachment was interested in this very scenario. So um, the the famous researcher who did this was a man named John Bowlby, and he was interested yeah, during Bowlby. World War II in orphans. He was interested in what happened to people who were often orphaned because either their parent maybe died in the war or died in some other area. And he noticed differences, particularly in children that early on didn't have the presence of a caretaker. But one of the important things that we've learned is that it doesn't, you don't need two caretakers necessarily to get the kinds of things that lead to a more positive, adaptive, secure attachment. That one caretaker could be there and could give you those things if the other caretaker is not present, whether it's because of death or other reasons. Um, having said that, the experience of loss is challenging always for us across the lifetime, right? Even as an adult, when we lose someone who's really important to us, it's a sad event. Uh, we experience grief. It's a particularly challenging event. In fact, it's one of the most stressful events generally for people that we ever experience. And that's true for infants and young children as well. If they lose a caretaker, caretaker that in itself is challenging. It may affect your views about intimate relationships and connections, but it may depend very much on whether there's another caretaker present or even an auntie or a grandparent that can step in and provide that kind of care. Um, so, so I think there are other places to get it, but certainly loss is a, is a very significant stressor for anyone and particularly true when you're a child. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you this question as well. So sort of moving away from attachment and all that. I mean, I'm glad that we covered all those, those areas because I find it really, really fascinating. And I think the more that we do talk about it, the better it will be for a lot of people in understanding and uh, in, in helping them find a, a good and meaningful life, things at work and finding that connection that we all need. But I've been asking a few people this question, even in my own sort of um, friendship circles, do you believe that we are as human beings inherently good? That's a good question. Um, I, I think we certainly have the capacity for good and um, I haven't, thought about this recently. It's funny if I think about the, you know, all the areas that we explored and it took us about three years to write this book. Um, we really talked about the capacity for connections, the capacity to experience sort of joy and meaning. And I think I would say we all have the capacity to be good. Um, those of us that um, aren't doing things that other people might think conventionally are not good or are in fact doing things that are bad and hurtful to other people. Oftentimes we can find experiences that are relevant that help us understand why they may take that path. Um, but it, that's a complicated question. It's worthy of a book is what I would say, Jay. And I think people have written about these books a lot. Um, what's interesting about, you know, the book we wrote and the question about what the good life is, the same is true about whether people are inherently good, is that there's ancient, you know, philosophical traditions that have tried to address this. 
What's really exciting is that we're using modern science now to bring a new perspective, right? To bring the rigor of science and to address these questions in a new way. And in our book, we try to use these as complementary views and that when science confirms ancient wisdom, it's great. But it's also important to recognize that in whether it's, you know, secular philosophical traditions or ancient religious traditions that they haven't always been right about everything. So the idea that there's a convergence is kind of exciting um, and there are going to be places where they don't converge. So um, that's a kind of long winded, maybe trying to evasive answer to important question. I haven't thought about it enough. I haven't recently delved into that literature, um, but it's a great topic, an important one to ask. I think it is hard to sort of quantify whether or not we come into this world and we are inherently good. I think in, in the idea of having something inherently within us as being good is something that sort of is conflicting with my idea of the world and and the, the whole idea for myself when you talk about spirituality and, and this idea of uh, evil being in the world as well. So it's kind of like this conflicting idea of, okay, yeah. do we end up in this world as inherently good or inherently evil? Or do we just soak up like a sponge almost? Do we learn these behaviors from people who are good and people that are evil? And then we decide to make a choice whether or not we want to lean into one side or we want to lean into the other side. Right. Or is there more of a genetic component to that as well? So that's my whole whole thinking around. Yeah, that. I mean, these are really deep and important questions. And, you know, war has been with us for millennia, right? And people have been doing bad things, but they've also been doing good things. And and mm -hmm. I think, you know, we have that capacity. So to me, the kind of modern question is always, how do we nurture that capacity? How do we make it more likely that people will connect in these positive ways? Um, and how can we limit the the, the negative ways that people might uh, relate to each other? So I, I think that's the question. There's certainly all of it as part of life. Um, I also think you were beginning to address another issue, which is... Um, important. It's something we thought a lot about as we wrote the book, um, the degree to which we're rational and we make good judgments. Um, what we learn is, at least in the area of happiness, that we have ideas about what may make us happy. And they often don't work for us. So we we think, for example, um, you know, I don't want to talk to a stranger on a train or the the barista that gives me coffee in the morning. All I want is the coffee. I don't want to know anything else. I just want to get my coffee. Well, it turns out when you're forced to connect with a stranger, psychologists do these kinds of experiments. We experience joy and pleasure. It's that that jolt of humanness and connection that you described so nicely before, Jay. We experience that if you have a conversation with your barista who you've been getting coffee with for years, but you don't even know their name. They know your name because they call out, you know, Jay, your order's ready. Um, you have this sense of connection that stays with you. People talk about it with their partners. They'll talk about it the next day. You know, this amazing thing happened. I actually talked to the barista. I learned what they're interested in. I learned where they come from. So this notion that um, we shouldn't talk to strangers is a kind of, a, it's not a good, we call it bad affective forecasting. We're not good at predicting what's going to make us happy. And we need to sometimes overcome those biases, right? We need to talk to the strangers, go to the party, be with other people, even when we think it may not be the right thing for us to do. I love Partners, it. by the way, do that for us, right? They encourage yeah. us to do those things sometimes. So good friends will do that. 
I notice that when I'm with someone, I'm more likely to engage with a random stranger for whatever it is because I've got someone with me. Yeah. Psychologically, it's interesting that. Well, they have your back. They have your back. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense, right? We worry somehow and we we overemphasize this, that if we talk to a stranger, bad things are going to happen. They're going to think we're silly or not interesting or they'll, you know, call us names. We have all these ideas in our head. And when you study it, strangers rarely do that. Of course, they do it sometimes, but they rarely do it. So more often than not, those conversations are quite pleasant. So having a a kind of wingman, a backup person, a a person to support us, of course, that makes us bolder in life. That's part of the benefit of relationships, for sure. Yeah, they save us from saying something stupid. Or if we do say something stupid, then they can chime in and say, oh, I'll fix this for you. (laughs) But but they also, Jay, I mean, what I like about your example, they also embolden us. They give us confidence. They, 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 They sort of... You know, it's it's not that we're holding hands as adults of that buddy, but having a buddy next to us makes us feel more confident. We feel braver. And that's really important, more important for some people than others. But I think that's part of what relationships give us. That's an example. I hate to go back to the attachment theme, but it's an example of how a connection with another person can help you explore things that feel a little bit scary. So in good relationships, a partner or friend says, you know, Jay, have you ever thought about trying this and you'd say no i could never do that and then your friend says you know i I think you could um you know i'll go with you right that's what friends do yeah going going with someone i think let's not necessarily holding hands so to speak but walking alongside them exactly similar pace not going too far ahead of them but actually making sure they're okay and asking asking them questions and then encouraging other people I mean, I feel like that is super important. But even even with myself, like I go to these different places and if I see someone that I want to ask a question to, if I find interesting, like I'll go up to random people and if they've got like tattoos all over their body, I ask them questions. It it starts my curiosity a little bit. Or even if um, I go to, there's a place that I love going to that has literally the best donuts, right? And um, I'm a sucker for donuts, Mark. I, kid you not. <laughs> I can't tell that. Uh, you can't tell, but I am <laughs> uh, so much. Uh, donuts and cookies, they're my huge mm-hmm. weakness. But um, this place is closing down. Um, and I, I was absolutely devastated because two things, number one, the donuts, but also number two, the connection, because it's a yeah. lot of fun going there and actually speaking to the staff. It's like they've become almost new friends for me and having coming from Sydney to Queensland and trying to integrate yourself into a community and society a little bit more, that was a challenge for me in of itself. So I was able to find this place, find a level of common ground, joke with them, have a bit of fun. And then now the devastation is they're closing down. Yeah. I I mean, I'm, I'm sorry you're experiencing that. It's a, it's a kind of loss, right? But it also speaks to how important those kind of connections are, even ones that we might sometimes minimize that they're not our best friends. Um, but these are daily connections. We, we build a sense of connection when we have repeated exposure to people. So friendships build the same way. There's some research that it takes, I don't know, 50 repeated encounters with someone to build a, a friendship. Um, so these kinds of acquaintances that turn 
turn out to be important. They relate it to our identity, right? They they welcome you when you come in. Um, so those are really important as well. Yeah, absolutely. I do so I'm, I'm smiling because I'm looking at you and I'm looking on your shirt. It says slouch. And, you know, if if I if we were together outside of a podcast, I'd say, well, Jay, what, what do you mean slouch? Why, why is that important to you? What is that about? I want to know. Right. So I'm, I'm communicating to you that I'm interested in this. You chose that shirt. It must mean something. Right. Yeah. I, I love this shirt. And yeah. I'm not afraid to talk about it at all. It is one of the most comfortable shirts ever. <laughs> I want to be comfortable. When I'm doing interviews like this, it makes me feel relaxed and somewhat confident as well. And people love the the whole idea of a slouch. Are you a slouch, Jay? And uh, I would say sometimes. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes. My posture is not the best. But anyway, I wanted to ask you, um, Mark, I feel like I could talk to you for, for ages about this stuff. Uh, and I'm glad that you brought up the, the attachment theory before as well again. So don't be afraid to do that and anyway. But this whole idea of delayed gratification, is that at all a good thing when it comes to having a meaningful life or a good life at all? Well, I think, you know, adult life, unfortunately, is full of delayed gratification, right? As kids, we, we kind of, you know, we get that lollipop and we just love it and we can get really giddy. Like it's one of my favorite things to listen to kids giggling in a way that we rarely do as adults. I'm someone who loves to laugh and that that sheer joy that you can see kids experiencing, it's just incredible. It's contagious. It's lovely. But as adults, we have work, we have rules. There, there are lots of things that prevent us from that kind of immediate gratification. And what I would say is this ability to regulate our goals, to recognize that there may be a time to get that gratification that may come later and it may be worth the investment we're putting in now that requires regulation it requires self-control and those are things that we learn as we're growing up we continue to hone as we're adults um, we also do the same with our emotions so it's important that we're comfortable with our emotions but it's also important that we can regulate those emotions so that whatever goals we're pursuing we have a better chance of finding those goals so when you see an athlete getting psyched up before a game, those are kind of raising that emotional level, right? Trying to use those emo emotions to motivate them and whatever their athletic endeavor is. Um, other athletes, they're calming themselves, right? They're, they're, you can see them breathing and they're doing a form of meditation. Uh, so they're regulating their emotions in the opposite way, trying to calm them. So all of those kind of regulatory skills, whether it's delaying gratification or controlling our emotions in the service of our goals, those are important skills in modern life. Um, and we, we learn them beginning in, in childhood, but we continue to learn them throughout our adulthood as well. Is there a difference between happiness and joy? So I would say it goes back to that discussion that we had earlier that that to me, there are two components of happiness. Part of it is joy and momentary happiness and other positive feelings, glee, um, passionate sort of satisfaction and, and just those kinds of what we think about as hedonic sort of just good and bad feelings that that pass and momentary they're momentary in our life but they they come and go and then there's a kind of sense of satisfaction that's more long-standing right so joy to me is about a momentary experience um, but joy and happiness are pretty close um those feelings of joy and happiness they have they're, they're both pretty positive and very similar i think uh, in how people experience them i wanted to finish off this conversation with asking you some questions about 
the book more in detail about the process of writing it because it took you guys three years. Mm-hmm. Whose idea was it? Was it yours or Robert's? Um, it was an idea that we discussed and we have been talking about for a long time. So both Bob and I are academics, we're professors, and we have written lots of articles. And, you know, we've been excited when those articles are appreciated by our colleagues. But we realized more and more there was a bigger audience that could benefit from some of the contributions of our participants across, you know, all these years and from some of the research. About seven or eight years ago, Bob, my colleague, did a TED Talk, and that TED Talk went viral. Um, I made the worst prediction of my life. I said, you know, Bob, I heard it before it, it was actually recorded. I said, you know, I think this might work. And now over 44 million people, I think, have watched that TED Talk. It's the ninth most watched of all time. And that was really the kernel of the idea that became this book. And what we realized from the response is that people were thirsting for this kind of information, that we had something that if we could communicate it in an effective way, that it was going to be of interest to people. So that's that's where the idea for the book came from. I remember going on Simon & Schuster because um, my book is, is yeah. published through them. And I saw um, I saw The Good Life on, on there and I'm like, that is going to be a huge book. Uh, I kid you not. And it kind of, um, I, w- I was sort of right, even though I didn't, officially now at the time, but I kind of knew and wow, this is like, it's blown up enormously. So congratulations to yourself you. and, and to you. Dr. Waldinger as well. But I, what were some of the, the main challenges that you faced or, or even Bob faced as well as you're writing the book? Yeah. So part of it was collaborative, right? The the, the challenges were collaborative. We, we wrote together. Bob and I have worked together and have become friends over the last 30 years now. So we have a longstanding relationship. But like any relationship, we have differences and we occasionally will experience challenges. So that was part of the, the challenge of writing was figuring out, you know, together what was important to emphasize, how to write it. I would say on balance, it was far more of a joy and a pleasure than a challenge. But working with any other person creates the possibility of those kinds of challenges. The the biggest challenge really, um, and in the end it was fun, but at times it felt daunting, is taking all these theories. So science works by being very conservative and, and very cautious and focusing on very narrow ideas trying to take hundreds of studies and step back and think about, well, what's the signal? What's the main idea that's coming from all of these findings from our study? And in the book, we go way beyond our own study to look at hundreds of other studies. What's the big signal here? And the signal that we found is that it's connections with others that really help us flourish both emotionally and physically. And when we figured that out and started to look again for support and ways to communicate that, that's when the book started to flow. Um, The other challenge is really doing this in a way that's engaging. And we were lucky because we had these life stories from the study that we were able to share with with, with people who are reading the book. We disguise their names so their identities are not revealed. But these are real life stories of people that lived and we were able to study them across their life. So being able to communicate ideas through stories is a great way of communicating complicated ideas. And that's what we tried to do in the book. Um, We weren't sure how it would work. You know, we had to write the book and rewrite sections of it. Um, So it was a lot of work over those three years. But we feel good about how it how it how how the book that we produced and certainly really, you know, gratified by the, the response to the book. So it's been terrific. When I say um, uh, 
I need to make a correction. Uh, when I say my book was published through Simon & Schuster, I need to correct it. was distributed through Simon & Schuster. i got to be kind to my publishers and, and say, post till press, publish my book. So I wanted Good. to make a correction Good. just in case they're listening to this and saying, I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> but sorry. Well, it also gets complicated in this era. You know, I mean, one other sign that we were on the right track is I think at this point we have over 35 translations. The book will appear around the world and it's not always the same publisher. So in North America, our publisher is Simon & Schuster. But, you know, in Australia, you're going to find the book is from Ryder Penguin Books. So it'll be a different uh, publisher. Yeah. Uh, crazy how that all works. But I wanted to ask you, what are you most proud of this book again bob and i have a 30-year connection and what we realize is that we bring out stuff in each other that doesn't come out when we work alone so the the, the products that we produce when we work together and we've known this for a long time doing the research that we do and doing lots of writing together that we 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 sort of bring each other's game up and the overall level of what we're able to produce is different than what we're able to do alone so i'm really proud of the collaboration that we did and i'm proud of the way in which we've been able to convey information that I think is useful to people in a way that is understandable to a broad audience. Um, it's been really nice to get, you know, the feedback from people as I do talks. I've even got letters. I have a few on my desk right here. People reach out and say what's been meaningful to, to them as they read the book. Um, you're someone who's, you know, in your podcast, terrific about telling people's stories. So part of our goal was really to tell these stories of participants in a way that was quite real and authentic to their experience, but was also accessible to other people. So I, I'm, I think we did a good job there and I feel proud about that. We didn't even touch on some of those stories. So maybe that's for another time, my friend. Um, but I did want to say thank you so much for all your work and same, same as well for Bob's as well for uh, impacting a lot of people's lives with this kind of research and for writing a book like this. So oh, I'm thank you. One thank you. Am, am grateful for your time. My final question for you, this is my all-time favorite question. I love asking my guests at the very end. It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Wow. So I love that question. It's a really meaningful one. And I think increasingly people are recognizing how important that question is. You know, at your funeral, what, what, what do you want people to say about you? And for me, um, it is connected to the book. It's, it's about the connections that I had with other people. Um, I would be quite happy if people said that they thought I was kind in the connections that I had with them, that I, um, tried hard to, um, not just to connect with them, but also to understand their experience and to, um, make those connections, not just about myself. They were also about those other people that would make me awfully happy. Yeah. I feel like that's a, a perfect way to sort of wrap up this conversation, but Mark, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your advice, your stories. And of course, for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Jay, it's such a pleasure. It was really fun talking, really interesting conversation. So thank you. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 